With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Everyone has a best friend. Or two. Or three. You tell everything to your best friend. And typically will do anything and everything with them. When you're with your best friend... You know that they will always have your back. Even if you're wrong in an argument or a fight, those friends will still have your back. But what if you were wrong about those friends? What if those friends turned on you without you realizing and ended up stabbing you in the back? That's something you would expect an enemy to do or someone that you may not like or get along with. You expect that from them, even if they reach out for help and you offer assistance, and then right at the end, as you turn to go about your day, they stab you in the back for one reason or another. That's what you expect from an enemy, but never your best friends. Welcome to the campfire. I am your host, Kevin. This is the Campfire Crime Chronicles, a true crime podcast. And this is the case of Skylar Neese. Recording that you heard was Skylar Nice's father to 911 dispatchers to report his daughter missing. So now we'll get into the case, starting at the beginning and leading up to Skylar Nice's disappearance. Skylar Annette Nice, born February 10th, 1996. She was an only child to Mary and David Nice. At the time, Mary Neese was an administrative assistant in a cardiac lab, and David Neese was a product assembler for Walmart. Schuyler attended University High School as an honors student who had goals set out to be a criminal defense lawyer. While in high school, she was working part-time at a local Wendy's, and she was a sophomore at UHS with her two best friends, Sheila Eddy and Rachel Schoff. Skylar met Sheila when she was eight years old in second grade. However, the two would attend separate schools. 
They would become best friends, and then when Skylar and Sheila got to high school, the two would meet Rachel in their freshman year. And then it wouldn't be too long before the two best friends became three. Skylar, like most teenagers, was very social and intelligent who had a strong interest in reading as well as an active social media life, as most teenagers do. She was posting everything and every thought on her timelines and her feeds. Sheila was said to be the fun-loving and carefree-like attitude of the three friends, whereas Rachel was the opposite that of Sheila. She was well-liked in school and would be involved in school plays where she would be casted the lead. Rachel came from a strict Catholic family and with this type of upbringing would have her idolize Sheila for her wild and carefree-like attitude. It would be said that Skylar would act as the emotional rock between Sheila and Rachel, where Rachel and Sheila's parents were both divorced, Skylar's parents were still together. Skylar and Sheila had a pretty tight relationship, and it got to the point that Sheila would come over to Skylar's place and enter without even knocking, as her parents would consider her as part of the family. The relationship between Skylar and her parents were always good. Skylar would always involve her parents in her life, even into her teenager years. Her parents would nurture her intelligence as well as influence Skylar to be her own person. While the three girls had a good relationship when the three first met, it wouldn't be too long before the friendship of the three girls would start growing apart. After all, three is a crowd. Before too long, Sheila and Rachel would become closer and would begin making plans together, excluding Skylar. This would upset Skylar whenever she was excluded from Rachel's and Sheila's plans, and she would make cryptic and sometimes very direct tweets on her Twitter account at the ever-growing division between her and her two friends. On the night of July 5th, 2012, Skylar came home late from a shift from Wendy's, and she saw her mother. She would state that she was tired and would be headed to bed. And around 12.30 a.m. on July 6, Skylar sneaks out of her bedroom window and gets into a sedan before leaving the apartment complex. This would be shown on surveillance cameras. At the time, Skylar's parents were unaware that Skylar had snuck out. Later that morning on July 6, both parents would go to work. Skylar's father would return home later that day on a break and noticed that Skylar's door was still closed. When Skylar's father noticed that Skylar wasn't home, nor was her bed slept in from the night before, he called Mary, who wasn't as concerned as David would seem to be. Mary would tell David to wait till 4 p.m. until he would report her missing to see if she would show up for work that day. This was because Skylar was very responsible and would go to work even when she was sick. David would also call Skylar's best friend, Sheila Eddy, who stated that she hadn't seen Skylar and that the last time she talked to Skylar was around midnight. When David would go outside for a cigarette, he noticed the small table or sitting bench outside that belonged to Skylar. When he investigated it, he saw that her window was cracked open and knew that she had snuck out again, as this wasn't the first time that she had done this. 
As 4 p.m. rolled around, the nieces didn't have a chance to call Wendy's because they called them asking if Skyler would be coming to work that day. That is when it would sink in that something was wrong and they would call the police to report her missing. At the time, Star City had a curfew of 11 p.m. to keep kids from partying and underage drinking and to also prevent accidents and them getting injured or killed from those accidents. This led police to believe that maybe Skylar snuck out for that reason because she knew that her parents would say no. However, they didn't dismiss it and would investigate her disappearance. They initially treated Skylar's disappearance as a runaway, thinking that she may have wanted to get away for two or three days before returning home. So with this, an Amber Alert wouldn't be immediately issued in connection with her disappearance. According to the people that were interviewed, they told one of the investigators that the teen attended the party and died, and that the people at the party panicked and disposed the body. While investigators would continue their investigation, Sheila and Skylar's mother would be searching the neighborhood for Skylar. This was on July 7th, and during the course of the investigation of Skylar's disappearance over the next several months, Sheila would call Skylar's parents asking for updates in the case. Sheila would even help post flyers up around Morgantown, as well as asking people if they had seen Skylar. During this time, Rachel would leave for Catholic summer camp. Rachel would seclude herself from people and Skylar's parents, avoiding anything to do with Skylar. People would take this as a sign that Rachel was quite upset over Skylar's disappearance and dismiss it. There was a rumor that Skylar was spotted at the beach in North Carolina with a redhead. Thinking that Rachel ditched her camp and picked up Skylar to head off to the beach, her parents began to prepare to head for North Carolina to look for Skylar. However, it would be confirmed that the two girls spotted in North Carolina were indeed runaways, but it wasn't Skylar or Rachel. Sheila would call Mary and tell her she had to tell her the truth about Skylar. When Mary asked what that was, Sheila explained that her and Rachel picked up Skylar around 11 p.m. and drove around Star City for about an hour where they had claimed to drop Skylar off at the end of the road between 11.45 and 12 a.m. Sheila told Skylar's mother that Skylar asked her to be dropped off at the end of the street so that she could sneak back into her room without waking up her parents. However, when investigators and Skylar's parents would review the surveillance footage from the apartment complex, they would discover that Skylar was seen leaving her apartment and would get into a silver sedan at 12.30 and pulling out of the complex in that car around 12.35 a.m. The surveillance would never show Skylar ever returning. When Sheila was asked if that was her, she denied it, saying that she picked up Skylar closer to her apartment. Going off of what Sheila told Marion investigators, they be were believing that Skylar had snuck back out after Sheila dropped her off earlier. The first time that investigators interviewed Sheila, they would sense that her demeanor was suspicious, showing no emotion. When Rachel returned from her Catholic summer camp, 
and she was interviewed by investigators, she would seem nervous, scared, or uneasy. When investigators interviewed both girls, they noticed something strikingly odd about their stories. They noticed that the stories were told verbatim, meaning both stories were exactly the same. And you don't have to be a seasoned detective or police officer to know that no two stories are told verbatim by two different people at two different times, unless they are rehearsed. While there wasn't any concrete evidence or probable cause for an arrest, police would continue their investigation and the nieces would have to continue to endure what no parent should or have to endure, the agonizing wait for the answers of what happened to their daughter or the whereabouts of her. In an era of social media, some clues seem to offer possible leads for investigators. As mentioned before, Skylar was quite active with social media via Twitter and Facebook. Approximately one to two days before Skylar's disappearance, Skylar made a post, presumably on Facebook, and I quote, You doing shit like this is why I can never completely trust you. The following day after that post, it was the afternoon before Skylar would go missing, she made a tweet on her Twitter, and I quote, Sick of being at fucking home. Thanks, friends. Love hanging out with y'all, too. These posts on social media would shed some light on the current relationship of the three friends. That their relationship may not be as strong as it had appeared to some. A state trooper that was assigned to the case in August of 2012 believed that this type of case was one where the offenders would start bragging about what they had done. With the post from Skylar the day before her disappearance, it had her two best friends on the radar of State Trooper Chris Barry and other investigators. It would be reported that Barry had created a fake online persona, that of an attractive teenage boy who attended WVU located in Morgantown, West Virginia, with profiles on both Twitter and Facebook to link up with both girls. This was so investigators could get a look into the psyches of both Sheila and Rachel through their social media posts. During this time, investigators observed that Eddie was perky, whereas Shof was the opposite, and she would be reserved and quiet on their online profiles. At the same time, neither Eddie or Shof ever expressed concern or that they were upset over their best friend's disappearance. Nor were there any attempt to reach out for people to help find their friend. Sheila's posts were mostly mundane and would even post a photo of her and Rachel together. Then other posts would strike investigators as odd, such as one from November 5th of 2012, and I quote, no one on this earth can handle me and Rachel. If you think you can, you're wrong. Rachel and Sheila would begin receiving pressure from people on social media. People on Twitter would begin accusing the girls of having involvement with Skylar's disappearance and telling them it was only a matter of time until they were caught. Rachel and Sheila were constantly brought in for interviews with investigators. As time would go on, the two girls became more secluded from their friends and relied more heavily on each other. 
During the investigation, investigators cross-referenced the surveillance footages from the apartment complex with camera footage from a Sheets gas station not far from the niece's residence. The vehicle seen picking up Skylar at her apartment was the same vehicle seen driving west past the gas station whenever the girls were interviewed about the night that Skylar was picked up. They had told police they had headed east. Investigators would drive around looking for the car, taking pictures of all the cars resembling the description and license plates, and would run them to see if anyone had relations to Skylar. Investigators drove the girls around Star City, retracing their steps the night that Skylar disappeared to help figure out what happened to Skylar. First, they took Sheila out, and when they were driving around, there were some side streets that they took and went more east towards Morgantown. When investigators interviewed Rachel, this is where Rachel's portion of the story differs from Sheila's. Rachel's story had the girls going in the opposite direction of where Sheila brought investigators. The route that Rachel said that they took had video cameras, and investigators said they could cross-reference the route that Rachel said they took with those surveillance footages. When investigators told Rachel this, she would begin to have a panic or frightened look on her face and would state that she was already high at the time that they picked up Skylar and that her memory may not be 100% accurate. With all the inconsistencies between Sheila's and Rachel's stories, Investigators couldn't rely on them as a reliable witnesses. Police would run both Sheila's and Rachel's cell phone records to see where they were the night that Skylar disappeared. Their records show that both girls' cell phones were active in the Blacksville area after 4 a.m. This determined that the girls had told a lie. Investigators also kept going back to the surveillance systems at the apartment complex and also the gas station. Investigators noticed something about their surveillance footage that any time a car would come in, you would be able to see the headlights of that vehicle coming in. So even if Sheila parked in a different location, they would have noticed the headlights at the time frame that she said that she picked up Skylar. This made investigators wonder that if Sheila had lied about the time that they picked her up, could she also be lying about that car being seen in the footage be hers? After all, Sheila did drive a silver four-door sedan as seen on the cameras that couldn't be ruled out. As the girls' stories began falling apart about their whereabouts that night, Sheila would finally admit that the car in the cameras was hers. She would admit this two months into the investigation. When investigators determined that the girls were in Blacksville, they would interview the girls. They interviewed Rachel first, and when they interviewed her, she would state that they went to Blacksville to smoke some pot and Skylar wanted to go to a friend's house to get more pot, and they didn't want to go. So they dropped off Skylar at the friend's house, and then someone let her in, and then Sheila and Rachel left. Then, immediately after, they brought in Sheila and interviewed her, and Sheila stated that 
They went to Blacksville to smoke some pot. Skylar wanted to go to a friend's house to buy more pot, but Sheila and Rachel didn't want to go. So Skylar got mad and walked away. And when Sheila and Rachel couldn't find Skylar, they left. So their stories didn't match. And although all the evidence pointed towards Sheila and Rachel for Skylar's disappearance, there wasn't enough evidence to charge them with anything. Police would need a confession, and they knew it would only be a matter of time before they got one. At school, word spreads that the girls are holding back information about Skylar's whereabouts. People would start pressuring the girls to go to the police about what they know, from people in their everyday life, at school, even strangers would pressure the girls. The pressure started getting to Rachel as she would become more aggressive towards her friends and family until she would break. In December of 2012, Rachel would have a nervous breakdown. Her mother would call 911 on December 28, 2012, stating that her daughter was out of control crying uncontrollably and hitting both parents and screaming. It would also be said that Rachel was running through her neighborhood. Rachel would then be committed to a local psychiatric hospital where she wouldn't have any contact with Sheila. Rachel would be discharged from the psych hospital after New Year's on January 3rd, 2013. Rachel got a hold of her attorney and would go to the police saying that she had to tell them something. Police expected Rachel to tell them that there was a party that the girls went to where Skylar overdosed and everyone panicked and the girls helped dispose of the body. However, what police were actually going to hear was way more chilling and gruesome and they weren't prepared for what they were about to hear. All Rachel said initially to police, we stabbed her. Investigators were speechless, as what Rachel had just told them took them by surprise, and they asked her to start from the beginning and recount the events and details of what happened. When Rachel confessed and recounted on how the events of that night took place, she stated that they talked Skylar into sneaking out and going with them under the pretense of smoking marijuana. She would tell investigators that her and Sheila planned the murder about a month in advance. It was stated in a report that Rachel and Sheila were in science class when they agreed that maybe they should kill her. On the night of the murder... Rachel grabbed a shovel from her father's house, and Sheila would grab two kitchen knives from her mother's kitchen. On that night, when Rachel and Sheila went to go pick up Skylar, they did bring their own pipes to smoke out of, as well as the kitchen knives they planned to use for the murder, that they concealed in the hoodies they were wearing, despite the incredible hot temperatures that night. And despite that, Skylar didn't pay any mind to this odd detail. Once they got to the wooded area in Greene County, Pennsylvania, where they normally go to smoke marijuana, the three girls began walking when Sheila and Rachel stated that they forgot a lighter. And when Skylar went to turn back to go to the car to get the lighter, the three girls counted to three and then started stabbing Skylar. While they were stabbing Skylar, 
She would ask them why. However, Sheila and Rachel just kept stabbing her. At one point during the attack, Skylar got the knife from Rachel and stabbed her in the leg. At that point, Rachel stated that is when she stopped the attack. However, Sheila kept stabbing her. Skylar was stabbed multiple dozens of times. It would be said later on in the investigation from a report that Sheila stopped counting after 50. But one report stated that Skylar was stabbed 55 times. Once they knew Skylar was dead, the plan was to bury Skylar's body. However, when they began to dig the ground, it was too rocky and rough for them to dig in deep enough. So they dragged her body away from the roadway to a secluded area next to a large tree and covered the body with dirt, brush, and leaves. Then the girls would change clothes that they brought with them and went home as if nothing happened. After the confession, Rachel agreed to lead police to where they left Skylar's body, as well as help police to get a confession from Sheila. Skylar's body was discovered in mid-January of 2013, more than six months later, after she was murdered. There were conflicting reports on the exact day that her body was discovered. Some reports state that it was discovered on January 13th, and others were January 16th of 2013. Although the body was found in mid-January, after being in the elements for over six months, of which was a hot summer in 2012, decomposition made the body unidentifiable, and it wouldn't be until around mid-March when the remains would be identified as Schuyler niece. Sheila would claim innocence throughout the whole time after the confession from Rachel. Sheila, at this time, was unaware that Sheila had gone to the police to confess. So in an attempt for police to get a confession from Sheila, they had Rachel wear a wire in an attempt to get Sheila to confess to her part of the murder. However, Sheila failed to incriminate herself. Investigators would search Sheila's car after Rachel's confession. Once they searched the car, they would find Skylar's blood on the seat. Police would have what they needed to charge Sheila Eddy for murder. Not only did Rachel and Sheila plan to murder their best friend, they outfitted Sheila's trunk of her car for the murder. They packed the trunk with a shovel, towels, bleach, and other cleaning supplies, a bucket along with a change of clothes to change out of from their dirt and blood covered clothes. After authorities matched the blood from Sheila's car to Skylar's DNA, she was arrested on May 1, 2013, in a parking lot of Cracker Barrel. She was charged with first-degree murder. After the girls were charged and arrested, several classmates of Rachel and Sheila's would come forward. They would testify that they had overheard the two discussing how they murdered and disposed of Skylar's body. At the time, the classmates dismissed what they heard, thinking that the girls weren't serious and that they were joking, which is the reason for them never going to authorities until after their arrest. And once they heard that the girls were arrested, they went to police. Rumors would begin to surface of why the two girls murdered their best friend. Some would say Rachel and Sheila were secretly lovers having a sexual relationship 
and were afraid that Schuyler knew about it and would tell everybody, which Schuyler's parents would deny her ever doing because Schuyler wouldn't have cared, as she had several friends that were both gay and lesbian. Others had said that the drugs corrupted Sheila's and Rachel's minds. Then others said they were just evil, and some had speculated that it was a thrill kill. None of these rumors were ever verified or confirmed by the girls. So what was the motive for murdering their best friend? The only answer that has ever been told by either of the girls was that they didn't want to be friends with her anymore, and that they just didn't like her. Sheila Eddy would initially plead not guilty to the charges of kidnapping, first-degree murder, and conspiracy to commit murder. Then, when she realized that she would be facing additional charges, she would change her plea to guilty to first-degree murder about a week before her trial. Despite not expressing remorse or even offering an apology, she would be sentenced to life in prison with mercy, which meant that she would be eligible for parole in 15 years on May 1st of 2028. On February 26, 2014, Rachel Schoff was sentenced to 30 years in prison with the eligibility of parole after 10 years for her cooperation and confession to police. This would make her eligible for parole and release on May 1st of 2023. Both girls are incarcerated at the Lakin Correctional Center. Schuyler's parents push for Schuyler's Law to be passed in West Virginia. Schuyler's Law states that a missing child doesn't need to be in immediate danger in order for the police to issue an Amber Alert. The nieces also turned the area where Schuyler's body was discovered into a memorial for Schuyler. So that concludes this tale by the campfire. There was a lot to cover in this case, and all resources used to gather information for the case include, but not limited to, news articles, reports, documentaries, as well as other sources. I appreciate everyone who has gathered by the campfire with me for this case. Also, if you wish to get ad-free shows as well as bonus episodes, then sign up and join me over at the bonfire. At the bonfire, in addition to ad-free shows and bonus episodes, you'll also get a shout-out on the podcast, access to Patreon-only feeds, which includes sneak peeks to the next case that I'm researching as well as early release of the next episode. So join me over at the bonfire and get the bragging rights to all your friends that you've listened to the next episode before it was released. Join me in two weeks for the next tale of the campfire, and remember to keep your friends close and your enemies closer.